as you've seen this morning, we are talking, as Keith has articulated, we are speaking on the issue of sexual immorality. And sexual immorality is something that's so pervasive in our culture today that it is right and good for us as a church and as followers of Christ to speak and to address this issue. But right away, many of us will say, well, yes, we have to be preaching this more now than ever before because sexual morality is an issue that, that is in many ways grown to epic proportions that the world has never seen this issue of sexual immorality and, and a, uh, a destruction of the family unit than the times we live in today. But what I want to remind you about this morning is that the book of Proverbs was written some 3,000 years ago. That's a long time ago, okay? That's before uh, the Roaring Twenties. That's before uh, the sexual revolution of the 60s. This is 3,000 years ago when Solomon is an, an old and, and wise king. He writes these words uh, to his son. And I want to remind you that the book of Proverbs invests more than one-eighth of the entire book, one-eighth of the entire book dedicated to the issue of sexual purity. You think they had a problem 3,000 years ago with the issue of sexual immorality? Brothers and sisters, this issue and this um, uh, predisposition to all things sexual in our culture is not anything that is new. It is as old as the sun. And it's something that we need to understand and we need to address. And and as a result of that, we have a choice that needs to be made this morning. Will I surrender the rights of my emotions and my passions? Will I surrender them to God on the cross of Jesus Christ and live according to his ways as my creator has intended for me to live them out? Or will I choose to pursue my own wants, my own desires, my own definitions of what morality looks like? And what we're going to see in our text is in Proverbs 5 through Proverbs chapter 7, Solomon is going to speak in an open and honest and a a candid way, and some might say even a way that's risque. It's way too descriptive, but I want to remind you that these aren't just the words of Solomon, but they are words from our Heavenly Father, that every word that we read is from the lips and and from the mind of God himself. And so what I want to do before we get into our uh, written outline is to give a little bit of an introduction of what we're talking about and and where we're going. And uh, to begin, it is important, even before we get into the words of of Solomon to his son on this issue of purity, to understand the issue we're talking about. We are talking on the issue of lust. Now, many of you know, okay, Tim, I know that, I understand that, Uh, but I want us to understand a little more deeply what that word lust is. It's a word we use and hear spoken of very often, Uh, but I want to define it because it is far deeper than you and I would ever Uh, want to realize. And so I want you to write down this definition in your outlines this morning. It's not a new definition. It's a definition I gave to you uh, during our time in the Sermon on the Mount when we spoke on the issue of of, uh, lust with regards to our mind and our hearts and then even physical lust when Jesus spoke in Matthew uh, chapter 5 with regards to this. But this is what we are talking about. Now, even before I get to this definition that's on the screen, and you can be writing it down, Scientists will tell you, uh, sociologists will tell you, that sexual lust is, is very simply defined as the illicit buzz within the human being. 
And what that means is there's this, this passion, this, this uh, energy within us that is sexual in nature. Now, if we stop there, then it doesn't help us much, and it doesn't frame uh, what the Christian's response is. And so here's a, a, a better definition, if you'd go to the next slide there for me. Uh, lust is a willfully allowed, pleasurable gratification of wrongfully directed sexual desire that takes place deep within us. It is a willfully allowed pleasurable gratification of wrongfully directed sexual desire that takes place deep within us. And that's a mouthful. And so let's break this down a little bit just to understand what is going on. What is that buzz within us, uh, that, that, uh, that thing within us that, that it peaks our imagination, it peaks our, our, our fantasy, it peaks our, our, our focus and attention? Well, first of all, let's understand that it is willfully allowed. What that means is, is that if you struggled or, or have struggled with fantasy or physical lust this week or any week prior to this, you can't look to someone else and blame it on them. You can't go around and say, well, the reason why I'm lusting is it's the devil's fault. The devil made me do it. While the devil tempts, the devil cannot force you to anything that you don't want to do. We are told very clearly in Scripture, in the book of James, that when we resist the devil, he must flee from you. And so we need to recognize that when we choose to lust, it is an absolute choice to do so. Now, we can't blame God. Now, there are some who will say, well, God has created me this way. And I, there's a lot of, of debate that I, want, I would want to address in that conversation that the Lord made us that way. But, but you could say, as simply put, that the Lord made me a sexual being with desires, with wants, with, with uh, uh, a pursuit for pleasure. And because God made me that way, then, then what I need to do is I need to live out every fantasy, every, every desire that I have. I need to do that because that's what God has made me to do. Now, I want you to recognize God has enabled you to do a lot of things. But he's also given us his word to build parameters and structure within our lives. And he's given us... The ability to be self-controlled in all ways. Let me, let me remind you, you and I have the total capacity to get so angry that we could take someone's life, right? I mean, just sit on I-88 during construction season, right? And you can get pretty angry. And, and, and the sinful things that can come into your mind, I mean, they come from the depths of hell. You don't want to admit it. I'll admit it to you. They come absolutely from the depths of hell. Just have someone, uh, you know, cut in on you or have someone uh, get that promotion at work that you were, were expecting. And, and the th- feelings and thoughts. But the Bible says, yes, you have the capacity to do heinous and evil things. But God has given by his Spirit One of the fruits of that spirit being self-control. And self-control enables us to say no to those uh, unwielding passions and desires that God says are no good. So you can't blame God for your issue of lust. You, You can't blame the pretty girl. You can't blame the handsome man. You can't even blame media for your issue with lust. The Bible makes it clear that the issue of lust doesn't begin with someone else, but it begins within, in, deep within inside each and every one of us. 
It is not on the outside what defiles a man, but what comes from within. We're the problem. Media didn't create pornography. Media didn't create a sensual entertainment. The human heart did. Uh, we had an immorality issue long before cable TV. We had an immorality issue long before a magazines ever came out. We had an immorality issue long before the internet because the heart is deceitfully sick. Who can understand it? And so the blame comes completely on us. We need to take ownership of this issue. Now notice the second part of this definition. It is pleasurable gratification. Whether you want to admit it or not, lusting and sexual contact is something that we have the capacity to be a part of, listen, as a result of God's gift to us. Now, what we have done is we've taken as God's gift to his people sexual pleasure as sexual creatures. We have taken that and what was supposed to be put within the marriage uh, relationship of a husband and wife for, for a lifetime, we have taken and we've thrown it into the garbage pile of sin. The gift that God used to, to cement that marital relationship The thing that God gave to husbands and wives to separate that relationship with all others, okay? And I want you to know that. Uh, Husbands and wives can be close, but I can also affirm to you that me and my guy friends and and even uh, some of of my lady friends, if you will, that I have a uh, platonic relationship can be close as well. We can enjoy shared experiences. We can do all of that. The thing that changes my relationship with Amanda as my wife and my relationship with every other human being is that, and, and I don't mean to be funny in any stretch of the imagination, Amanda and I are without shame as we are naked in front of one another. I don't do that when that hour can be a little funny. I don't do that with you, my friends, okay? And so it transcends that relationship, and it transcends it, not because we we just do a lot of stuff together. The sexual intimacy between a husband and wife is what transcends that marital relationship above all others, and God intended it for that. Now, here's what you need to understand, God, in his common grace, allowed for sexual um, relationships to be pleasurable. Now, I wish that what, what if, you know, and this is where you always say, well, if I was God, I would have done things differently, and God will tell us in heaven why he didn't. But if I was God, what, what I would have done is the moment that the pastor says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, a little light switch turns on, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, hey, how are you? You come here often? But that's not what happens. You see, at some point in our young teenage lives, that light switch comes on, and we become fully functioning sexual beings, and, and, and sex and everything surrounding sex is something that's very pleasurable, something that is, is intended to bring us joy and, and satisfaction. And so whether it is done according to scriptures or if it's done in the most perverse of ways, God has enabled our bodies to experience incredible pleasure from this pursuit. And so we got to understand that. So, so if you say, well, yeah, this, this doesn't bother me, then something's wrong, okay? If this is, God has, has created us to be this way, 
and he's done so for the marital relationship, but we've changed it. Notice that this is an all-sexual desire because we see in the definition it's the wrongfully directed sexual desire. You can't lust over your husband or wife, okay? That's love. That's sexual love towards one another. But when you direct it towards anybody else other than your spouse, now listen, you say, well, right away, well, I don't have a spouse, so I can do whatever I want. No. What it means is that sexual lust is when we take any sexual thought, whether in mind, in a heart, or, or in the body, and we direct it towards anybody we are not in a marriage relationship with. And so we have to recognize that any thought that is acted upon in our mind or in the flesh is lust that leads to fornication, it's lust that leads to immorality, um, it leads to adultery, and it is wrong, it is sin. C.S. Lewis, the great theologian, spoke of the issue of lust, and he used the metaphor of a fireplace where the family was enjoying a wonderful fire on a cold evening. And he says, here's the glorious thing. God has enabled within every human being that fireplace where fire can be enjoyed, where warmth and, and the coziness of a, of a roaring fire uh, in the fireplace. And here's the thing. When it's in the fireplace, it's protected. When it's in the fireplace, it is where it needs to be where we can enjoy the benefits of it without the disaster that could loom. What lust is, is taking that fire out of the fireplace and putting it in the middle of the family room. That which was beautiful and and picturesque and, and able to receive blessing from now has become chaos that has the opportunity to hurt all those who are in its vicinity. And so we need to recognize that. It's taking Lust is taking that which God intended for a certain place and time and because of selfishness, putting it where it can bring great harm and damage to all those around. Finally, we notice that this issue of lust is something that takes place deep within us. It takes place deep within us. I want you to understand, you and I cannot fully understand our sexuality. We don't know where it begins. We don't know where uh, the, uh, the sexual thoughts come from. We need to be careful to think that they're only skin deep. They're not. Our sexuality is more than nerve endings in certain parts of our body. It goes well beyond that. It goes to the very depths of who we are. Our sexual response as human beings is deep-seated, and as a result of that, there is a reason why it is incredibly personal, why it's incredibly complicated, why it's incredibly hard to pin down. It feels like our sexuality goes down to the very depths of who we are. And so many of us find ourselves struggling, whether it's with wrong thoughts or issues of pornography or self-stimulation or sensual entertainment or literature or it's homosexual feelings and attractions. For singles, it's the issue of fornication, that is sexual sin outside of marriage, or it's the issue of adultery, sexual sin within uh, the marriage, or, or, uh, or uh, adultery is that sexual sin that is done by married people. The sin within this arena affects us all, and listen, Our struggles with sexual immorality remind us once again that all of us are sinners in need of God's grace. Now some of you will say right away, come on Tim, this is the church and we don't need to be speaking about such things. 
Let me remind you that an eighth of this entire book is dedicated to sexual purity. Let me remind you that an entire book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, speaks candidly on the subject of sexual relations. But let me also remind you that our society has inundated us with this issue. And I believe it is one of the greatest issues that's facing the church and Christians today. And let me remind you of why this is such an important battlefield for the church to address and to bring clarity and teaching to. Now, maybe it's because technology has allowed more and more avenues for it to come, but it sure does seem like the devil has bombarded us with images and scenarios that make us think ungodly thoughts and turn to sexual sin. Have you noticed that sex sells everything these days? It sells cars, cheeseburgers, clothing, potato chips, deodorant, and even web hosting companies. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't take long for us to understand that it is so easy for us, even as believers, to fall to the issue of lust. It's all around us. Now, a generation ago, many parents had it a lot easier than they did. I remember, and I think I've shared this before, but I remember when we would be on long car trips, my mom would see a billboard that she didn't want us to see. And she would always, and we caught on to her, her ploys, she would say, oh, look at the deer, look at the deer, and she would always point the other direction. And, and this is just a knock on my, my brother Joel, my younger brother, he's still looking for the deer, all right? Don't tell him I said that, and hopefully he doesn't hear this. That's just an older brother hassling a younger brother. But, but my mom knew what was on the billboard, and, and she was concerned that her young boys didn't need to see that stuff, that they didn't need to be a part of that. So it was real easy. Mom just kept an eye on the, the billboards coming, and she would always tell us to look for the stinking deer, and there were never any to be found. I will say... Well, my parents had difficulties, and in many ways, parenting is very similar today as it was in yesteryear with regards to the issue of sexual morality and protecting your kids. My parents had it easy in comparison to what Amanda and I are having to deal with and what you're having to deal with with regards to your kids and and raising your grandkids. That which you had to go into the seedy part of town where you had to go and and, uh, or or find a a, a magazine now is at your disposal. Every sin that could be found in Sodom and Gomorrah is at your fingertips. And we need to recognize that. And we need to understand that this is something that's very difficult. Just to bring this into perspective, statistics help us because we can easily say, well, it's not as big of a problem as we make it out to be. Here's what the study tells us. Pornography is a $97 billion industry globally. That's huge. That's massive. $13 billion of that comes from the United States alone. 12% of all internet sites are dedicated to pornography. You, well, how many is that? It's more than 27 million. Two and a half billion emails a day are pornographic related. 25% of all search engine requests each day, whether through Bing, AOL, Google, or Yahoo, are pornographic in nature. That's, that's one in four people are going to the internet to pursue sexual immorality. 70% of all 18 to 24-year-old men uh, have confessed to visiting pornographic sites in a typical month. 66% of men in their 20s and 30s also uh, confess to being regular users of pornography. Now, you might say right away, wait a minute, Tim, that's the world. 
That's not the church, and so that's not indicative of the church. Barna surveying evangelical churches said the following, 70% of Christian men and 47% of Christian women admit to struggling with pornography in their daily lives. Now you think, okay, Tim, that's a lousy sample. Barna uh, Research did a lousy job because that wouldn't be people here at Village Bible Church. So let's then take those numbers and cut them in half. And let's say that we're really good at it and uh, we we don't fall to such things. That would mean that 35% of us as men and 23% of us as women struggle with it. That's still one in three men and one in four women who admit to dealing with this. 48% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women admit to having an addiction to pornography. Now you say, wait a minute, Tim, that may be the normal or average evangelical church, but we're Village Bible Church. We're far better than that. Well, let me tell you something. We are an average evangelical church. Our giving to the Lord in the local church is average. Our weekly rate of attendance is average. The involvement of the people uh, into ministries in the church is average. So here's what I'm going to tell you. We are an average church, and that means we are right now within our pews and within our youth group and within our men's groups and women's groups inundated with people who are losing the battle with regards to sexual immorality. And we need to get clarity on it. We need God's word on it. We have a problem. And it's not a man problem. It's a woman problem. It's a man problem. It's a woman problem. It's not a young person problem. We don't just point to the students in the student ministry and say, boy, you guys got it tough. It is something that affects all ages, all sexes, all social economic places and statuses in life. And we are losing the battle. And here's the grace of God. God in his great love for us has provided us a place where we can put our sexuality and all of the struggles and all of the issues and all the emotions behind it, God has given us a place to place it and that is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, whether we are single or married, it is there that you and I will find fulfillment. Listen, in Christ alone and not in our sexual desires and passions. But in order to do that, we've got to get to God's word. And so notice in our text, right away, within one of the most extensive passages of Scripture on the subject matter, notice how Solomon begins in verse 1 and 2. My son, if you want to put something after that that, that comma there, my son, in light of all that Pastor Tim has just said, in light of the pornography that's running rampant, in light of the uh, adultery that's going on all over the place, in light of all of the sexual innuendos and, and compromising places that we see on television, in light of the sex-saturated world we live in, my son, because of all of that, you are to be attentive to my wisdom, You are to incline your ear. Remember what that means? That means literally to thrust yourself, to throw yourself, and you're listening to the understanding that you might keep discretion, that your lips may guard knowledge. You're struggling with sexual immorality of of the thought life or of the physical life. The answer is there in verse 1 and 2. Incline your ears to the word of God. Stop listening to that illicit buzz within you and start listening to the creator of that buzz. 
Start listening to him and ordering your life according to what he says, not what your passions and emotions are telling you to do. Now notice what he's going to address is, notice in verse 3, that what he's warning against is personified in what is called in verse 3, the forbidden woman. Solomon uses the term the adulteress. He uses the term prostitute. He uses uh, the term of her who calls out from the streets. It's always given in the feminine, but that doesn't mean that this is only a man issue. And I want you to notice that when it speaks about her, it tells us in the text that she is beautiful. She's gorgeous. She's attractive. She is something to be desired. Sexual immorality is personified in a woman who is not only beautiful and attractive, but one who is always available and willing to do with you whatever pleases you. She is there, ready for action. She is there, and she will do whatever you want, whether you think it's right or not. Now, notice in our text, Solomon tells us that immorality by this beautiful and attractive woman, or handsome and gorgeous man, starts out always smooth and sweet. Notice in verse 3, for the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. I know we don't use terms like that in our day and age today. But in the day of the Proverbs, you couldn't get much sweeter or much smoother than that of honey and oil. In layman's terms, what Solomon is saying is that indulging in sexual immorality happens because it just feels too good. It feels just right. I can't put it any other way. Turn your Bibles for a moment, one page over, to uh, Proverbs chapter 7, where Solomon gives us a, a, a vivid picture. In Proverbs chapter 7, starting in verse 10, he says the following. In essence, he's giving a running commentary on a young, simple man who is walking down the street looking for a night of passion, and he knows where to find it. He knows where the adulteress is, and we know when we're looking for that kind of illicit sexual buzz, we know exactly where to go to find it. And we will go to great lengths to find it, and he uses this example of, of watching this young, simple man who's pursuing a night of love, and, and notice the woman meets him in verse 10. She's dressed as a prostitute. She's wily of heart. She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. She's now in the street. She's now in the market. She's at every corner. There she lies in wait. And notice what happens. He goes and she grabs him. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. So now I can come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from the Egyptian linen. 
I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. Whoa, 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 danger, Will Robinson. He moves beyond it. He is on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come back, meaning that he'll be back next month. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Now go back to chapter 5. Why is it that sexual immorality feels so right and tastes so sweet? Here's why. Paul tells us that at the core of every sexual sexually immoral thought is the devil. And the devil masquerades around as an angel of light. And so what he does is he knows that he cannot place before you, this last week, just to give you a beautiful word picture of it, this last week my, 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 one of my sons who has garbage detail forgot to take out one of the garbage cans. And so we had garbage that was eight, nine days old in the garage. I open the lid and what comes out? Maggots. Sexual morality, listen to me, is a garbage can full of maggots. And any real human being, when they see maggots, what do you do? You recoil. It's just sick. It's like, why in the world, God, did you create those things? The devil knows that. The devil knows I can't put before the Christian, or or the unbeliever for that matter, a, a bucket of maggots. They'll never go for that. So what I do is I put before them a prime rib dinner. Or for our vegetarian brothers and sisters, a plate plentiful of fruits and vegetables. And it's viewed as beautiful. It's set before us as a centerpiece. And you can't take your eyes off of it. So it is with immorality. But notice, that which starts out sweet, that which starts out smooth, ends up being sour and sharp. It ends up sour and sharp. It's so attractive and so delightful, and yet when we consume it, notice what the Scripture says. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a two-edged sword. Bitter as wormwood is a phrase that is only used eight times in all of Scripture, and it speaks of an herb that was incredibly bitter, and if you consumed small amounts of it, it's bitter at first taste. If you consume more than just a little of it, it's deadly. So it is with immorality. Oh, it tastes good as it touches the lips, but as it starts going down the gullet of our lives, it becomes sour. Notice, immorality is something that starts out smooth, but becomes as sharp as a double-edged sword. Now, the only time that I know of in Scripture, and I may be wrong, but the only other time I hear that expression in Scripture speaks of the Holy Word of God. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts down into joints and marrow. It, it, It breaks down all things. It can cut through anything. And so what is this passage telling us about sexual morality? It is telling us the opposite of what the Word of God does. The Word of God cuts through as a knife in a surgeon's hand to to break down the issues of sin and and, and disbelief in our life. 
What sexual morality does is it cuts, and it's a double-edged sword, which what it means is it doesn't just cut the flesh, but it cuts the soul as well. And some of us this morning are bearing on our own bodies consequences of sexual immorality. And many of us are dealing with the psychological and the social and the soul-driven consequences of immorality in our life, the guilt, the disappointment. And while it starts out so good, it ends up being sharp and sour. Notice that he doesn't stop there, but he moves on. And notice in chapter 7 again, turn one page over again in chapter 7, and remember this guy that's hanging out with this woman, and she's beautiful, and everything's going just right, with much seductive speech in verse 21. She persuades him with smooth talk. She compels him. And then all at once, immediately, as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into the snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. In verse 26, for many a victim has she laid low, and her sl- all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going to the chambers of death. You, if you find yourself playing with sexual immorality, whether on a computer screen, a book, a television, or in real life, it may feel really good right now, but take notice and incline your ear, it will not end up that way. Because point number two says that the path of immorality leads to disaster. It leads to disaster. Now Solomon understood that a couple verses on the subject wouldn't be enough. And so he articulates again in a short blurb, he says, hey, listen up. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27, he says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Now let's remember What he's not talking about is geographical neighbor because when we hear about the term neighbor, remember that Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? And and Jesus speaks of the story of the Good Samaritan that that separate uh, um, um, ethnic lines, not ethical lines, ethnic lives, and all humanity is our neighbor. And so you say, well, I don't know the name of that person who I'm lusting after. They're your neighbor. And so what you are doing is the scripture says it will not go unpunished. A man reaps what he sows. And so he says in a short blurb that we need to understand that. But notice in our text in in, uh, Proverbs 5, 7 through 14, he tells us, And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Let you give honor to others and your years to the merciless. Let strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation." 
Within these couple verses, we see that there are three consequences to sexual immorality. Number one, when we follow sexual immorality, we will inevitably find disgrace. Your honor, it says, is given to others. Think of the countless men and women who have lost all respect from the world because they allowed their sexual appetites to get the best of them. How many Christians uh, have lost the ability to minister and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether as a vocation or, or simply as sharing as one Christian to a non-believer, the amount of testimony we've lost because we have fallen morally. Think of the lost opportunities that have taken place due to this sin. The disgrace isn't only for us, the perpetrator, but it affects all those who are close to us. Have you ever noticed that when uh, a uh, major politician or celebrity falls morally, that they always inevitably have their spouse standing right next to them? And you ever look at the spouse, the spouse is like, I can think of a million other places I want to be here than right now. I don't want to be here. This Yahoo next to me couldn't keep things in control, and i got to stand here because he's Mr. Popular. He's Mr. Well-known. Now i got to stand here with cameras all over me, and the disgrace not only for the perpetrator who says, hey, I'm sorry, here's my mea culpa, but the people, the kids that are involved, the families, the moms, the dads, brothers and sisters, when we live this way, we will get caught. And the disgrace that comes, the impact that is affected to those most close to us can destroy the very fabric of the people we love most. Your honor will be given to someone else. Number two, notice in verse 11, at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. Scholars believe that that what this is literally speaking of 3,000 years ago is, is the disease that can come from rampant sexual immorality. Now, there's two types of disease. Notice that sexual immorality consumes the body and causes you to grow. Our sexual immorality as a society and as a world is, is affecting us in epic proportions. The CDC, not focus on the family, not Center for Biblical Family or anything like that. The CDC, Center for Disease Control, says the following. 50% of 18 to 25-year-old kids now carry a sexually transmitted disease. Many of them not knowing it until the symptoms start to show up. As a result, the immorality that you and I choose raises our chances of certain uh, diseases and cancers. They literally skyrocket as a result of it. Because of sexual immorality on our bodies, our immune systems are damaged, and it makes us susceptible to all types of illnesses and ailments. While sexual sin is of no greater grievance to God than any other sin, it's missing the mark. Paul says that sexual sin is different because when you and I uh, sin sexually, we sin against our own bodies. And boy, is he right. We become an enemy to ourselves. But some of you are thinking right now, well, good, I'm safe. Because what I'm doing is not physical. So I don't have to worry about disease or unwanted pregnancy. And that's why I choose pornography. Because it still allows for that illicit buzz to be within me, and and yet it is safe, and you are dead wrong. Pornography is a drug that affects your brain. 
Scientists are telling us that when it is consumed, it releases dopamine into the brain, and after a while, that which produced the good buzz within you will only have to be ratcheted up in order to get the same high. You are a drug user and abuser. To steal the phrase from a famous song I remember growing up, when speaking of the singer's drug abuse, it could be easily substituted for pornography. He said the following, I used to do a little, but a little was too little, so a little got more and more. And so it started out just with, with, with maybe something on cable TV, and it turned then to the internet, or it turned to something illicit, and, and now you've dug yourself so deep into a pit, and you say, I, I can't live without it. And in some ways, yes, you have trained your body to think that way, but take heart, Jesus has overcome the world and our bodies as well. Even secular psychologists today are saying that pornography is a real danger. It's a real threat because, listen, it is warping, especially the young people, uh, the, the early, uh, what, it, what is said is the average age of a young person seeing pornography is around nine years of age. And their view is totally warped on what it means to look for a partner and a spouse. And so someone has trained themselves to think that's what sexual intimacy looks like. And when the husband or wife that they've now married doesn't do those things, doesn't drop everything at the, at the uh, drop of a hat uh, to do whatever your whim is and whatever your desire is, then you say, well, my spouse ain't doing it for me. In a recent blockbuster movie... Sociologists put together a theme. The movie was called Don John. I've not seen it. I read a review on it. And it tells the story of a man who is so addicted to porn that he would rather have his porn than a real woman. This is what the secular movie writers are saying. This is a problem. And it goes back, and the Scripture tells us, when you play with fire, you will be burned. If that's not enough, notice that this disease, again, doesn't just affect our body, it affects our mind. But notice in verse 12 through 14, it addresses disappointment. Notice verse 12 through 14, and you say how I hate discipline and how my heart is despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructions. Now I am on the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled who have regretted the stuff that they've allowed into their lives, the heartbreak of it all. Many in this place right now are screaming on the inside. They're wishing that they could go back to that moment, back to that day, back to that scenario where it all began, where that issue became something that was more for you to be, more than you could bear, desiring nothing more than to live it all over again and do it differently. The young person who allowed themselves to go too far has to explain to a future spouse that what was supposed to be kept for them has been given away to someone else. The sorrow of a spouse who has to explain why they've been caught in pornography. The devastation of a marriage as a result of of an affair and the damage that it brings. Moment by moment that we wish we could take back, but sadly, there are no do-overs in life. And what do you say in that moment? Why didn't I listen? Why didn't I incline my ear to the teachers, to the truth of Scripture? But sadly, it is too late. And the consequence will come. Notice what the consequence is there, their characteristic in verse 9. Listen, you will give your years to the merciless. 
The devil loves it when he tricks you into thinking that you can do all of this stuff and not be burned and not be beaten up and not be destroyed. And he loves it and he piles it on us when we fall to it. And he is merciless in showing you what he really did to you in that moment. What a great sermon. So encouraging. So what do we do? There's a protection against immorality that involves certain disciplines. I don't know about you, but it seems really hot in here. I feel like I'm sweating up a storm. I told Amanda, this is why I have gray hairs. It's sermons like this. You think it's hard to listen to a sermon like this? Preach it in front of 500 of your closest friends. So notice verse 12. How do you change it? Notice what the remorse of the individual is. How I hated discipline. It's at this point we feel pretty lousy about ourselves. It's at this point that this deep passion within us that's wrongfully consumed us, you know, you sit there and say, Tim, great message. But let me remind you that there is great truth. There's great hope. There's great grace. Solomon says that he leaves us with truth that can transform our lives. Listen, whether it's our past is filled with this junk and we're looking for redemption and we're looking for forgiveness, Solomon says it's there. If you find yourself deep within it right now, Solomon says that there is grace there. And there is truth that can lead us out of this type of sin. And notice it's as simple as ABC. What do we do? Number one, if we don't want to live this way, if we want to be wise in the way we live with regards to our sexual passion, number one, avoid immorality at all costs. A, avoid it. Notice verse eight. Stay far away from her. Don't play games with it. In my van, I, I bought a van uh, a year and a half ago or, or so, and, and it had a fuel pump issue. It, it ran fine, but, but when you have a fuel pump issue, one of the things that happens is your gas gauge stops working, okay? And I'd come to recognize how long I could drive before my gas would run out, about 320 miles. And I would play the game, how far can I go before I run out of gas? I ran out of gas a lot, And there are some of us that are playing this game right now. How far can I go? And you've already gone way too far. My dad used to tell me, Tim, don't ask me how far is too far when you're dating because if you're asking that question, you're probably going too far because that's your conscience just throwing up alarms all over the place. Man, Tim, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be a part of this type of stuff. So don't ask those dumb questions because by the very essence of asking how far is too far, it's far too far. The term flee is the word that the New Testament uses. It is the Greek word fugo. Fugo. It is easy to remember. Flee means you go. You get that? You go. The Bible says we are to resist all types of sins. But when it comes to sexual sin, it says run for dear life. It literally means to literally vanish, get lost, seek safety by flight. Stop playing with this. Don't stand around. Don't try to resist it. Don't try to test the waters. Do exactly what Joseph did with Potiphar's wife's advances. When it comes, you run for your life and you do not look back. It's as simple as ABC. A, avoid it. B, build a good marriage. The Bible says that marriage is given so that sexual immorality can be thwarted 
And notice in the text, in verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving deer, a graceful dole. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Let's just stop there for a moment. The Bible makes it clear that the antidote to sexual immorality is good biblical marriages. And what I mean by that, it's sad we have to define this, but, but what God is talking about is a monogamous, lifelong, heterosexual marriage with one person. And he reminds us of two truths. Write this down. Marriage in the scriptures is always seen as exclusive. It's always exclusive. Your sexuality is not your own. It is your spouse's. Paul tells us that a husband's body does not belong to him, but it's his wife's. And the wife's body doesn't belong to her. It's her husband's. And it is in that vein that the marriage bed is something that should not be defiled. It cannot be defiled. What it means is that when a husband and wife are together and living um, out the sexual uh, principles that God has laid forth, that what happens in the bedroom between a husband and a wife is a beautiful thing in God's eyes. There's nothing dirty about it. It is God's gift to that husband and wife. But notice how the Bible talks about it. It's exclusive. It's only between those two. And, and this is an important word. It is to be exhilarating. I, I, I put down first the word exciting. That wasn't strong enough. Exhilarating. is, And if there's a better E word, you come and tell me, and I'll tell the second service it. Notice the words that are used. Fill you with delight, intoxicated with her love. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Read the book of Solomon and you're going to blush because the sexual intimacy between a husband and wife is that which brings great joy to them both. Now listen, Solomon says it's not just for the young. But as we grow older, we are to delight in that same woman, in that same man that we fell in love with in our teens and 20s. All the days of our life. And so church, if you are experiencing a cold and and sexless marriage, let me say something abundantly clear. You are disobeying God's calling to you as husbands and wives. Christian marriages should be the trophy of what redemptive sexuality looks like. And sadly, it is us who looks with great admiration to the world as as if they've got true sexuality all figured out. Now I know, listen, I know that marriages are full of ups and down seasons. I recognize that what was easier to do as a young person can become more difficult as days grow longer. I get that. And here's what I would say. You and your spouse talk those things over and the intimacy, listen to me, begins far before the clothes come off. It begins in conversation. And what I'm talking about is you and your spouse sitting down and talking about this. One of you take the lead and say, we, we haven't talked about this very much. How is our sex life? And you don't need to tell us, and I don't need to tell you, but you and your spouse need to talk about that and ask the question, is our sex life glorifying God? I know it's difficult to make a strong marriage, but by the grace of God, you need to do it. Notice, finally, you need to commit to obedient living. Verses 21 through 23. 
You have a decision to make. And notice the decision. For a man's ways are always before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast by the cords of his sin. He dies for the lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. You have a choice to make this morning. You can either place yourself in your sexual passions as your God and king. You can put them as first and foremost. You can serve your passions and desires or you can give God his rightful place and obey him. God has told you that he wants you to live. And for you to live the blessed life, either as a single or as a married individual, means you need to obey. For some, that will mean chastity and celibacy for a season. For others, it means chastity and celibacy for an entire life. And God's grace is there and is able to help you in that time. For some, it will mean uh, getting married instead of burning with passion. For some of you, it will mean turning back on the fire in your marriage. And that's not always easy either. But God is examining our ways. And my prayer is that he will see in me and you, my friends, that we commit each day not to live for our passions, but for him. And when we fall, we see that God sees a humble and contrite heart that is eager to seek restoration and forgiveness. Listen, this is the most important part of the message. Remembering that it is Jesus alone who can cast any stone our way. Because he's the only one who was tempted and did not sin. But instead of condemning us for our sexual sin, Jesus Christ came into this world to forgive us and cleanse us, and he nailed every one of our sexual sins on the cross of Calvary. And as a result of that, they are not held against us anymore. They can do us no harm anymore because God, who has called us, is faithful to redeem us through and through, all the way down to that illicit sexual buzz that is deep within us. Thanks be to God for his love. Thanks be to God for his grace. Thanks be to God for his forgiveness and the spirit that he enables us to find victory over lust and sexual immorality. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word speaks such truth to us. And Lord, As we leave this place now, we have a decision to make. You have given us the ability to choose the path we will go. We can choose to follow sin, or we can choose to follow our Savior. Lord, I ask in in a divine way that your Spirit would fall upon each and every person here so that they may choose to follow their Savior. Empower them to say no to sin and ungodly lusts. Because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been made manifest to us. That we can look to Christ, the sinless Savior, who is tempted in all ways yet without sin. Remind us that it's possible to do that under the the Spirit's power. So fill us with your Spirit. Lord, if, if we're struggling or have struggled with this, Lord, we would find a faithful friend who we confess our sins one to another and seek restitution and seek redemption. Lord, let us be quick to repent our sins to you so we may experience the forgiveness and and the renewed fellowship that comes. Lord, I know my brothers and sisters here, some of them are dying inside, and I pray you would give them hope this morning. I pray that you would give them victory this morning. And I pray, Lord, that they will be able to look at this day as a day where a flag was put into the ground that sexual sin wasn't going to control them any longer. 
Lord, I pray we'd be a church that'd be honest about this. We'd be transparent about this. Lord, I pray that we would lead effectively helping and counseling people with this so that this church may be a place that doesn't put on their their chest a badge of, of honor that says we've got it all figured out, but it would be a place where broken people could come and find redemption and hope from even the most difficult of sexual issues and inclinations that we face on a daily basis. Now, Lord, lead us from this place into this world of debauchery, into this world of impurity, so that we may shine as bright stars for you and your kingdom and your name. But we need again your spirit, Lord. So empower us, fill us, so that we will not gratify the sinful flesh. It is in Christ's name we close out this service. It is in Christ's name that we have sung and opened this word. It's in Christ's name that we've lifted up prayers. It is in the fabulous and glorious name of Jesus Christ that we now go and fellowship with one another. And it is in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen.